You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Landscape around college sports may change forever after today. And for once, I'm not going to ask you what you think about paying athletes. I'm not going to tell you what I think about paying athletes. For once, I'm going to give you the hard truth. College athletics are changing, and you need to deal with it. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. You guys and all of our callers join us on the Goodyear Hotline. And I'm going to get straight to some straight talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. It comes in the form of the Supreme Court. Now, I won't pretend to be a legal analyst. In a few minutes, we'll be joined by Ryan Smith, ESPN legal analyst, to break down everything that happened today. But what you need to know is that the NCAA, in their case, NCAA v. Alston, was heard by the Supreme Court today with more than 90 minutes of oral arguments about the business model that's been created by the NCAA and what it all means for the future of college sports. This isn't about name and image and likeness. This is about uh, players suing, saying that there are opportunities within the education system for them to get paid. And that's what was being heard by the Supreme Court. Now, it creates this endless argument. Should anybody be paid? You guys can chime in. Triple eight, say ESPN, 888-729-3776. We'll go interactive tonight. The conversation is constantly, should college athletes be paid? What do you think? What do I think? And I've given you my take on this a million times. As somebody that was given the opportunity to go to school on a full scholarship as a violin performance major, yes, those exist, and somebody that was offered those scholarships to large schools, in, for example, Big Ten schools, where I could get my education for free and still had the opportunity to go pay, uh, play orchestra gigs, play wedding gigs, get paid for all of these things. I don't understand why an athlete doesn't have those same opportunities. That being said, we don't need to have that same argument. We don't need to rehash that same argument because at some point it's not going to be about what you think. It's not going to be about what I think. It's going to be about what the Supreme Court and what governments say. It's not that different in some senses than what we've experienced in COVID. So many people yelling about what should happen and what shouldn't happen. And what did I say in the beginning? It's not really an interactive discussion anymore. At some point, it's going to be the governments and the legislators that come in and tell us what we can and can't do. And that's exactly what do you know what happened? This is the same thing. See, once you get the Supreme Court involved, once you get the Supreme Court listening to the, the details of amateurism and questioning those details, once you get to that point, it doesn't matter what you and I think. When you get to the point that multiple states have name, image, likeness bills that are out there, uh, according to a quick Google search, 13 uh, last year put out uh, some sort of a bill, 18 more uh, are about to put out a bill. So you're looking at what, 31? Quick math, 31 different states are involved in this already. And some states that have legislation that will be starting as soon as this summer, this summer, about name, image, likeness issues. You start having that conversation and you realize that it's not going to be about what fans think. It's going to be about what the government comes in and decides. Now, I want you to know something that's important when it comes to name, image, likeness. When it comes to athletes getting paid in general. I will always give credit to the uh, information on this because I didn't come up with it. Uh, But... As Twitter has pointed out a couple of times, front office sports pointed out the top five most followed followed athletes on elite eight teams. All right. The top five, four of the top five most followed athletes on elite eight teams from the March Madness tournament. We've been talking about four of them are women. And when you look at their name, image, likeness, earning power at the top of the list, Paige Beckers. All right. the, the, The most followers. Her name, image, likeness, earning power estimated by front office sports to be about $382,000. Think about that. That's money that's just being taken even from female athletes, even from women athletes. In fact, eight of the top ten 
monetized, uh, if, if, we're, if it were possible, monetized uh, social media presences, eight of the top ten would be women. Ten of the top 20 would be women. Those are people that are just not getting the opportunity to earn their money. Now, you, you may have an opinion that you think that that's okay. You may come in and say, well, an education counts for something. But I would counter that and say, why are we trying to limit any entrepreneurialism? I mean, at some point, do we not usually in college turn around and say, oh, look at what this entrepreneur did there on Shark Tank. That's awesome. Oh, but not if they play a sport. Not if they're a swimmer that wants to go out and be a judge for a swimming competition. Can't do that. No, no. And I love the competitive balance argument. I mean, that even came up today with the Supreme Court as they listened to all of the conversation. Competitive balance came up. Guess what, guys? Belmont's not going to compete with Kentucky year in and year out in basketball. How many football teams have a real shot at a championship every year, even at the highest level? Competitive balance doesn't really exist in sports anyway. So now it becomes not about any of those things. It becomes about law, lawmakers, and the higher powers stepping in and saying, is this right and is it legal? Not even just is it right, is it legal? Does it violate antitrust law by forcing these kids to be amateurs while they make billions of dollars? That's the real question. See, as much as we continue, Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz flying solo tonight, as much as we continue to have this conversation about what we think, at some point what we have to understand is that the new generation of athletes is an empowered generation. They've figured out the power of their voice. They've figured out the power of their ability to monetize their brands. They've figured out the power that they can have, not just on the court or on the field, but outside of that realm. And with that power comes the ability to affect change. It comes, comes the ability to impact the world. We're seeing more and more that that's something the current generation of rising athletes is passionate about. They are passionate about their ability to come out and make things different for the next generation. With that mindset, you got to understand, as much as it's easy to get lost in the moment of what we think, who should be there, who should get paid, who shouldn't get paid, what any of it means, what we know, what we know with certainty is that at this point, that decision is going to be made by people with a lot more power than any of us have. And whatever the ramifications are to college sports, we need to stop running from it and we need to start running towards it with a mindset of this is the new normal. And with the new normal, how do I make sure that my favorite team, my favorite program can be as successful in this new normal as possible? Whatever that means, that's the challenge at hand. And that should be the mindset. That's some straight talk. Straight talk, wireless, no contract, no compromise. Again, I'm not a legal expert. So what we're going to do is we're going to get some expertise. Straight ahead, we'll gain some information on this trial from one of my favorite experts at all of ESPN. We'll do it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Obviously, one of the big stories of today is the NCAA having their case heard by the Supreme Court. What does it mean for the future of amateurism in sports? So uh, we're going to head over to the Goodyear hotline. We're brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Obviously, I'm not going to pretend to be a legal analyst or expert. So when we need legal analysis, we always call him my buddy, Ryan Smith, ESPN legal analyst. He joins us now. Ryan, thank you so much for your time. Let's start with the bare bones here. How surprised are you that this has even gotten to the Supreme Court? I think it's an incredible feat. I mean, when you think about it, this is the first hearing uh, involving the NCAA in front of the Supreme Court in almost 35 years. And that goes to show you how important of an issue this was for the Supreme Court. Now, 
Jason, what's really key here is to separate this out from all the name, image, and likeness thing that we see going on across the country. It's a different issue. This is about whether the NCAA can cap education-related expenses and benefits for college athletes, things like paid internships, payments for academic achievements, scholarships, stuff like that, if capping that violates antitrust laws. So they went back and forth on that for over an hour and a half today, which tells you how interested these justices are in this issue. If they were to uncap it, what would it mean realistically for most athletes? It depends on who you talk to. So for the NCAA, it would mean a slippery slope where you could pay athletes a ton of money, depending on public opinion, a bunch of other things that come into play. But as the dis- this is a case that the players, Austin in this case and other players, won on the district court level and on appeal. And essentially the district court level and on appeal basically said the schools can't uh, limit paying stipends, internships, things like that, can't limit some of those payments. They did give some latitude on whether conferences could decide to maybe keep some payments down. So there's a little bit of latitude there. But if you're coming from the NCA on this, you're saying, well, this is going to blow the doors wide open. Now you could pay somebody a ton of money for a paid internship, or you could end up ending up paying every Division One athlete uh, and they talked about this a lot in the case. Every Division One athlete, something like 5900 bucks just for playing. They're worried about things like that, taking it on this. If we start in one place, it could be a lot more, and that's the way we see it, and that's the way we see the lower court's ruling. But the lower court's ruling seems to be giving some latitude for conferences to be able to step in and limit it a little bit. It's Spain and Fitz, or Spain Jason Fitz. Typically, Jason Fitz flying solo tonight, hanging out with Ryan Smith, ESPN <laughs> legal analyst. And, uh, Ryan, when when uh, I'm going to use the big, you know, I watch too much Law and Order, burden of proof, right? So you mentioned that yeah. the lower courts all ruled in favor of the players. So what does that mean for the burden of proof in something like this when it goes to the Supreme Court? So it means still, this is on appeal by the NCAA. So the NCAA is trying to make its argument as to why the lower court decision should be thrown out, and the defense, the, the, the players are arguing against that. So you go in front of the Supreme Court, and what, what I think some people don't realize about the Supreme Court is a lot of times both sides, they start with the NCA and they launch into their argument. But the justices interrupt at any time. Sometimes you don't even get your argument out. They interrupt and they start asking you questions, and they do the same to the other side. What really stood out here, Jason, is they did that very quickly with the NCA. Didn't let them get through the whole argument, just, just jumped right in with questions and they questioned them a lot for a very long time. And here's the big deal. Across ideological lines, a lot of times you'll see in the Supreme Court, I've watched a bunch of arguments. A lot of times you'll see people say, well, uh, conservative justices, as we term them, might ask these kinds of questions in favor of something and maybe liberal justices ask something else. In this case, you had Clarence Thomas, Justice Thomas, questioning the NCA as to why college coach pay isn't restricted as player pay is. You had Justice Kavanaugh talking about why he he was concerned that schools were conspiring to deny athletes salaries by hiding behind antitrust laws. You had uh, Elena Kagan, who is considered to be a more liberal justice, talking about the talk of amateurism being high-minded and sort of really pushing back on the NCA's argument that, hey, we've had this system in place for a long time to protect amateurism. And then you had a conservative justice worrying about whether Neil Gorsuch talking about is, is this an agreement between competitors to fix prices? So all of them, I should say maybe about six or seven of them, were really pushing the NCA on this issue of, hey, you say it should stay the way it is. Why? And why do you feel it's fair to not give 
uncapped education-related benefits to student-athletes. So, Ryan, let's go the next step down then. The, the Supreme Court now takes yeah. all of this information. They process it. What do they do next? So they take a bunch of months, and I, I think you can expect a decision sometime, I would say, in the summer. People are expecting it around June. They take all this information. They argue amongst each other. They will eventually select somebody to write the opinion, but they'll essentially take a vote and decide how they want to want this to play out. Somebody will write an opinion. Somebody will write a dissent who feels strongly on the other side, assuming that there are um, votes in dissent. But what's going to be interesting here is a lot of times we try to read things into the questions they ask. Oh, if they're grilling the NCA, that must mean they're going to decide against the NCA. That is a fool's errand because many times justices will ask arguments just basically to test out theories they believe in, but they want to ask about the counter. They want to test that theory. They want to say, okay, maybe I think things should stay as is, but I'm going to ask this guy a lot of questions to try to figure out if I've got my thinking right here. And that's what's so interesting about this process. They also questioned um, the player's side. And essentially all of this breaks down on the idea of if you're on the player side, you're looking at this and saying, hey, you're trying to violate antitrust laws by setting up this scheme of competition and bailing it under this idea of amateurism. And we think that should go away. Or you're setting up a situation on the NCA side of a slippery slope. Hey, we decided to pay players on certain expenses now. Well, you're going to pay them 5000 for an internship and say, that's okay. What if people think 20000 is okay? Well, we see more lawsuits. And then they'll say 50000 is okay. So a lot of that was breaking down in the court today. That's what they were really trying to hit on and question about to try to sharpen whatever their opinion will be. It's Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz, talking to Ryan Smith, the ESPN legal expert, as we break down everything with the NCAA uh, and their lawsuit uh, that is in front of the Supreme Court today. So you mentioned this is very separate from name image likeness, and that's fair. What impact does the ruling on this have, if any, on name image likeness initiatives across the country? That's where it could get very interesting, and I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, we, we tend to lump all of this uh, paying players, if you want to call it that, together. This relates to education-related benefits. Name, image, and likeness relates to players being able to exploit their name, image, and likeness, sponsorships, things like that for profit. So if the court decides in favor of the players here, that means they're affirming the lower court's decision that in some ways there can't be this cap on these education-related expenses, internships, payments for scholarships, and the like. So it, I think, will intensify the efforts around the country to, to set up laws around name, image, and likeness, because many people do see it as going hand in hand. Well, you're paying for these benefits. Hey, all the more reason to kind of accelerate what we're trying to do to, to create laws around allowing players to get paid on name, image, and likeness. So I do think it will have an impact. Now, here's the rub. The NCA wants there to be a federal standard around name, image, and likeness. Why? Because they don't want to have to deal with 50-something different laws. They want to be able to have one guiding principle that – hopefully in their mind, they get to craft with federal legislators. But that could weigh against them in this decision. Um, it could play out in any way. Sometimes you look at it and say, the federal government's got a lot of other things on their plate. This might not be a priority. So if you have a decision going against you, if you're the NCAA here, states accelerate their process and you kind of have to deal with it. But in many ways, what happens in this decision could spur on other states to get more active in what they do, sensing that a tide is turning 
that whether it's education-related benefits or it's name, image, and likeness, we have got to do something to govern the principles surrounding giving players compensation. Nobody breaks this stuff down better. Follow him on Twitter at Ryan Smith TV. Check out uh, Outside the Lines, too. He's got a great interview there with Dan Murphy, but uh, more of a deep dive into all of this. Ryan, as always, I appreciate your insights on this, your expertise. Thanks so much for joining me, my friend. Anytime, man. Great to talk to you. I mean, what we're looking at at this point, Spade and Fitz, Jason Fitz here, is six states have already passed bills on name, image, likeness, by the way. Thirteen more states introduced a bill in 2021, and 18 states have already introduced a bill that hasn't, start, uh, hasn't passed yet. So only 13 states left in the U.S. haven't done anything about it. Real quick, let's go over uh, to the Goodyear hotline. Mark in Georgia, what you got, man? Thanks for calling the show. Yeah, I don't think name and image and likeness should be used by the NCAA. But uh, on that point, I, I don't think college kids should be paid to play sports where they're going to be making millions and billions of dollars. You know, it's a small price that they could pay for their fellow students to donate that amount of money to college and let everybody enjoy those numbers, not just the special few. Mark, thanks for the call. But I guess my, my only thought here is that there are very few players that would get paid millions or however many dollars you want to talk about to actually play. And most of what we're talking about here is not necessarily a school cutting a check to a player to come play, although that is part of the process of what they're going to try and figure out. I mean, the one thing I would argue to all of that is that what about the swimmers and divers that are out there right now just trying to fight for the health of their programs? And and you could say that that's going to go away if schools have to turn around and pay people, but I could also argue that maybe some of those athletes wouldn't need the same level of scholarship if they were allowed while on scholarship to earn some money doing what they do best. I don't understand why we have to limit kids doing anything just because they happen to play a sport. I mean, we're not asking tutors to give a portion of their tutoring money back, uh, even if they're making money tutoring other students like how many kids right now in college are having to take out money out of their credit cards just to pay tutors to help them get through classes but nobody's helping them out it's not an easy solution none of it's easy all i'm saying is that i believe the lawmakers are going to give us the answers whether any of us like it or not all right we've done a lot on this we'll get back to it in a little bit but straight ahead i got one position on the nfl field that i think you need to go out there and start selling stock on time to get rid of it it's about to be devalued i'll tell you what position it is and why it matters for this year's draft next spain and fitz on espn radio you're listening to the spain and fitz podcast the NFL draft is coming up, and that means the annual discussion about whether or not you should take a running back because everybody's going to tell you that running back isn't valued anymore in the NFL. It's become part of the logic. But what if I told you there's another position on the field that's headed down that same path? Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. ESPN Radio presented by Progressive Insurance. Drivers who save with Progressive save over 750 bucks on average. Call or click today. Find out if they could save you hundreds on your car, insurance, who doesn't want to save money? Come on now. So as we continue to get ready for the NFL draft, and by the way, shameless plug, I'll be a part of three days of digital content. You can check out uh, wherever you stream your ESPN uh, on the app, Twitter, everywhere else. So we'll be doing, as we've done before, I think about 17 hours of coverage with no commercials. So my, uh, admit, admittedly, I am just knee-deep at this point in draft analysis and trying to find little good nuggets on all these different players and having them all doing it. I love the draft. The draft is my favorite event of the year. It's my Super Bowl. I'm not the only one, too. When your team stinks, you know that the draft is the event you look forward to because you feel like it's finally the team time that you've turned a corner, right? Well, as we continue to look at this year's draft, we've become so obsessed with the top of the draft that we're forgetting that there are a ton of amazing prospects throughout the course of the first round, particularly. Many of those prospects happen to be wide receivers. Now, 
Uh, we can have a debate, and we will in a second, about which one of those wide receivers is best. But what really hits me as we look at it is this is the third year in a row that I find myself sitting here getting ready for the draft saying, wow, I'm not sure we've seen a draft full of wide receivers like this in years. That's a conversation every single time. Remember last year? Oh, last year. I mean, my beloved Raiders had their pick in the first round of all of the greatness, right? And so many conversations about which wide receiver is going to be best, right? Uh, that's what, what happened last year because it was such a stacked class. But what if I told you this year's class at the top looks like it's almost as good? I mean, this year's class at the top is absolutely on par with what we saw last year. You know, we were obsessed last year with the conversation about Jerry Judy or Henry Ruggs, uh, C.D. Lamb. We all know that Justin Jefferson turned out to be absolutely incredible. You can keep going down. T. Higgins had a good rookie year, right? You can keep going up and down and saying, man, you could get a contributor anywhere. But what happens when that's the year-in, year-out case? Because this year, I would make the argument that you're going to see immediate impact for guys like Jamar Chase. You're going to see immediate impact for Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddle. I mean, Kyle Pitts, who is actually a tight end but is able to be used however you want to use him. There are receiving weapons all over the top of this draft. Now I'm looking around thinking, if there are weapons everywhere that you can get on a rookie contract, especially a four-year rookie contract with a fifth-year option, why would you not? Why would you not essentially stop looking for veteran wide receivers and just essentially let yourself put rookies into that slot? The more we see, not even first rounders, but the more we see second, third, and fourth round wide receivers that are able within the first couple of years to be significant tribu- contributors to an offense, the more I feel like what we're going to see is a shift in value positionally. Also think about the way offense has changed, right? We see young quarterbacks being asked to be successful quickly. And in order to do that, more and more coaches are coming from the college level or they're implementing college schemes into the NFL level, right? In the case of doing that, if you're trying to help the quarterback, you're also going to help the weapons around the quarterback. Are you not? We're not going to see great numbers. Yes, this is a year where we saw some big money go out to wide receivers and there's still going to be exceptions to the rule. There's always exceptions to the rule. But the rule maybe changing in front of us. Maybe the right approach is to draft wide receivers, as many as you possibly can, especially in a 17-game season. You need depth, right? As many wide receivers as you can, and then taking veterans that want that second contract, that third contract, and looking for short deals. I mean, uh, again, I'll point at my beloved Raiders. What did they do? Nelson Aguilar came in on a one-year deal, and they reached a a point where they weren't going to pay that kind of money for a longer one. They bring in John Brown over from Buffalo, right? You're just basically recycling veterans that can come in and help while you wait for your young guys to develop. I'm not going to say that it will be an immediate impact that you can have a first-year wide receiver come in and suddenly just light the league up. But I do think it's an expectation that you can look at the wide receiver position and say, hey, why pay a ton of money to guys when we can instead get a bridge while we develop the young wide receivers we have and by the second or third year in their contract – They are now exactly who we need them to be. It's a different way to cycle your money and a different way to look at that position. Now, that being said, uh, all of the debate that we're having about wide receivers, uh, there is one, according to Ryan Clark, ESPN NFL analyst, that is head and shoulders above the rest. This is what he said on the Max Kellerman Show. He's Steve Smith. He's he's, he's run after the catch. He's 50-50 ball winner. He's he's, he's a dominant personality. But he's also 4'3". He's also 6'200 pounds. He's also 41-inch vertical, 11-foot broad jump. He's also in and out of cuts like a 5'8 wide receiver. 
and he's just freaking competitive. And I think when you go back and watch the film, you're going to see four NFL number one corners from last year. You're going to see A.J. Terrell. You're going to see uh, Diggs. You're going to see C.J. Henderson. You're going to see Cam Dancer. And they all had their opportunities to play Jamar Chase on the line with no screens and no, no switch routes and no trick plays, just mano a mano, press coverage, who's better? And guess who was better every time? Jamar Chase. And there's no way to go back and watch that film and say, this is not a top five pick because that's what Jamar Chase is. Now, Ryan Clark doing a great job there of telling you, Jamar Chase, I should have told you that from the outset. Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz flying solo. But keep in mind one thing that that makes Jamar Chase a little more difficult. Because everything Ryan Clark has just said is absolutely correct, right? But there's a factor that wasn't mentioned there, the factor of the opt-out. And that's one of the factors that we have to consider throughout the entirety of the draft. The last time we saw Jamar Chase, he was doing absolutely incredible things. In 2019, caught 84 balls for 1,780 yards, 20 touchdowns, and absolutely dominated on an explosive LSU offense that had a great quarterback. A lot of real opportunity to see him not only surrounded by great talent, but taking on great talent. Those are all incredible things that sort of checkmark different boxes under the case for Jamar Chase. Is it not fair, though, to say that we haven't seen him in a year? I mean, a year off makes a difference to anybody. Not to say that he was sitting around like you and I would on a year off. I highly doubt he spent his year off, you know, eating too many uh, chocolate chips and, uh, you know, letting the quarantine fluff get to him. I, I don't think that's the approach that Jamar Chase took. But realistically, when you don't see him for a year, there's two elements. There's a little bit of out of sight, out of mind. We become in love with whatever the new fad is, right? But there's also the element of what did that year do? As, as much as you're training, there's a difference between football shape and there's a difference between uh, just being in shape. I mean, there is a moment where the lack of body of work over the course of the last year makes some of these prospects harder to judge. I'll look at the other side of the ball quickly and say, you know, Gregory Rousseau is another great example. Somebody that absolutely got after the quarterback for Miami looks like a t- uh, just a tremendous threat as a pass rusher. But he didn't play last year. So I don't know. I mean, we want to think, give benefit of the doubt across the board, but benefit of the doubt is a tough thing to give anybody at any position in the first round. But all that to say, when you start to break down the wide receiver position this year, Jamar Chase is going to be, I think, absolutely special, going to be incredible. He's going to have the opportunity in an NFL now that that restructures their offenses to give wide receivers the opportunity to touch the ball quickly, often, and with impact. He's going to get the opportunity to make immediate impact. But then again, so is Devontae Smith. So is Jalen Waddell. I mean, yet again, every single year, it feels like it's a broken record of Alabama wide receivers that are coming out and crushing, right? Isn't that some point? At some point, isn't that reason to look at it and say, man, why re-sign wide receivers to huge contracts if we can instead address the position with less money in the draft? I think that's the future of where that position's headed, and it's one of the most important things to keep an eye on as we get ready for the NFL draft. All right, we've talked a lot about the wide receivers, but obviously all eyes are on the quarterbacks. Plus, Deshaun Watson continues to be in the headlines. We'll give you the newest development. We'll get you the update on all of it next. Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz, flying solo on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz Podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. I'm Jason Fitz, flying solo tonight. Obviously, we'll get back to the draft conversation in just a minute. With quarterbacks, I know everybody loves talking about quarterbacks, but one of the quarterbacks that's in the news right now is Deshaun Watson. 
We've been very careful on this show and will continue to be to make sure that we're talking about the right portions of this. I want to keep everybody updated on what's happening and make sure that people understand the information as we get it. Uh, but through the process of this, we're not really diving into what it means from a football standpoint, from what it means from an organizational standpoint. There are more important things uh, to figure out through all of this, and uh, this suit needs to play itself out. And One thing we've tried to do is give you information without necessarily a, a, attaching any take to it. I want to do that now. And uh, to do that, to, to reference that, I'll give you some insight that we've got here that you can find on ESPN.com if you want the full article. Two more lawsuits alleging sexual assault and inappropriate behavior were filed against Deshaun Watson on Tuesday evening. That, uh, those lawsuits, that lawsuit count is now up to 21. So 21 women uh, are part of this uh, suit uh, accusing Deshaun Watson of inappropriate behavior and sexual assault. Now, the flip side of that is that uh, Deshaun Watson's attorney has released statements from 18 women who say they've uh, worked with the Texas quarterback. And uh, this is the quote. He's never made them feel uncomfortable or demanded anything outside the scope of a, of a professional massage. Another interesting development through all of this is the attorney that is uh, part of the lawsuits being filed. Mr. Busby posted on Instagram on Tuesday night that he doesn't feel comfortable going to the Houston Police Department with any information and that he and his clients will go elsewhere to provide their evidence to investigative authorities. I don't know exactly what that means. I just know that at this point that means that they're trying not to involve the police in this process. So I want to keep everybody updated, and I want to reiterate what Sarah said really smartly, so I will steal her basic concept, even if I can't steal the words uh, verbatim uh, when it comes to this situation. What I never want to do is come out in any way, shape, or form and accuse victims of doing anything other than uh, telling the truth and being victims. And what I don't want to do is come out in any way, shape, or form and accuse Deshaun Watson of anything until we know more. So what we are trying to do right now is believe all sides until we know more truth. And that is really difficult to do at times, depending on the information and who you're talking to. And it's really easy to look at the other side of it, the football side of it, what it means for Deshaun, what it means for the Texans. I will say again, there's going to be a place and a time for that. That place and that time is not now. I hope that the NFL at some point decides to put Deshaun Watson on the exempt list. That's what it was created for, essentially, where he's still making money, but he's not around the team. And until we get any sort of real information on what's happening and we get more details, on exactly what's gone down, at which point we will have plenty of time to vilify whoever is not telling the truth through this entire process. We will have plenty of time to come in and give our judgments then on what it means to all of the individuals and also what it means, far less importantly, to anybody involved on the football side. We'll wait to then until to, to, we will wait until then to do that. In the meantime, let's get back to the NFL draft. This year, it's like nuts. Trevor Lawrence and then everybody else. So Trevor Lawrence is considered can't miss, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I get it. But Mac Jones is really the one that's most interesting to me right now. Mac Jones is going to be the riser in this draft. The Jets and Zach Wilson is a marriage that I think makes all sorts of sense beginning in 2021. So as we look at the NFL draft, great production work by everybody putting that together, by the way. Uh, great work by for the staff behind the scenes. I, look, this is so difficult for me because I have to admit first my bias. I am risk averse at the quarterback position. I will say again, if you draft incorrectly at the quarterback position in the first round of the draft, you will set your organization back at least four years. 99% of the time, don't at me with Kyler Murray. Don't give me the one exception to the rule. That's cute. But 99% of the time, what happens is you draft somebody and you've got to give them enough time to figure out if you've gotten it right. 
if you don't get it right, not only are you setting your organization back, but you're firing everybody involved in the process unless somehow you're the Chicago Bears and you're keeping your GM. Like, it, that's a rarity, right? So you have to look at it at some point and say, if you are wrong at the quarterback position, you're setting your organization back substantially. Part two of this quarterback conversation. Go back and just find the articles written by anybody that covers any of the teams that think they have had their answer over the last five, six years. Remember, there was a point where Tampa Bay Buccaneers fans were convinced that Jameis Winston was going to lead that organization for the next 20 years. I covered the Titans in Nashville when Marcus Mariota was considered a savior for the organization. We see how that played out. Sam Darnold, I mean, one of our producers used to trash talk me every morning about why I didn't get it with Sam Darnold because he's a Jets fan. And now we want out from Sam Darnold, right? Like, this is the inevitable course that takes place for virtually every quarterback. In fact, look at Baker Mayfield. One year, Baker Mayfield's the rookie of the year and going to be the next Peyton Manning. The next year, Baker Mayfield's hot garbage, shouldn't even be in the league. And now, like Goldilocks, we finally found that just right, right? It, it, it makes no sense how we react to it, but this is the inevitable way that we treat every single quarterback drafted in the first round. So understand that what you are doing when you draft a quarterback in the first round is you are throwing a Hail Mary. And when it works, oh my God, when a Hail Mary is completed, it is the moment that will be shown over and over and over again. You can hang your head on it. And for the rest of your life, you can tell your buddies, wait, don't go anywhere. I've seen this play work. But the rest of the time, it doesn't work and you lose. That's what happens. Now, there's going to be a lot of losers in the first round of the draft. That's just because historically that's what happens. I believe that Trevor Lawrence is as surefire a candidate as you could possibly get for a number one overall pick. I believe that through and through. I believe that Trevor Lawrence is an absolutely incredible quarterback, and if he was going to be the quarterback of my favorite team, I'd already have the jersey, I'd already have the wig so I could wear the terrible hair, and I would walk around all day with my chest puffed out saying, we got Trevor Lawrence. All right, that's one. But what about the rest? What about the rest? And that's where it gets really interesting. Matt Miller, ESPN NFL draft expert, was on our morning show, Keyshawn J. Will and Zubin, this morning, talking about his most concerning quarterback prospect, and it's a name you're hearing a lot right now. Zach Wilson. And you could look at Mac Jones and say, okay, he's never played without an all-world offensive line. He had four first-round wide receivers at one point in 2019. But my biggest concern is going to be Zach Wilson. We, ha- we can't explain why the jump for him from 2019, where he threw 11 touchdowns and nine interceptions, to 2020, when he threw 33 touchdowns to three interceptions. Is that jump because he figured things out? Is it because he got healthy? Or is it because they played, due to COVID, a really weak schedule? No one has the answer to that. We're all guessing. That's the part of the draft that's hard. We're, we're guessing at why Zach Wilson got better. But I see that as, is he a one-year wonder? Is this a Mitchell Trubisky situation where a guy just got hot, the situation lined up perfectly for him, and he's actually not going to get better? I do like Zach Wilson. I was at his pro day Friday. It was a very good workout. He's a really nice young man. I think he has the potential to be a good quarterback but if you're talking about risk factors that one year production against the weakest level of competition arguably even compared to Trey Lance at North Dakota State that weak competition that should give people some some room for concern I think I hope somebody archives that Spain and Fitz Jason Fitz flying solo I hope that Matt Miller ESPN NFL draft expert audio is archived and played again in five years for one of two reasons not not for I told you so moment not at all but to remind everybody that this is such a crapshoot At the end of the day, like we forget right now that there was a viable discussion about whether or not Ryan Leaf or Peyton Manning should be the first overall pick in their respective draft. There was a real discussion about that. 
Because nobody knows. And 10 years later, everybody looks back and says, oh, my God, why did these idiots not see it? If anybody would have known that Patrick Mahomes would turn out to be Patrick Mahomes, he would have been the first pick in the draft, and somebody would have traded their entire draft for the next five years to go up and get him. We don't know. What we do know is that if you're going to make a guess, if you are going to absolutely just throw spaghetti against the ceiling to see what sticks, you want as much information to do that as possible. That's why I frankly, if I had to take a bet on somebody else, it would be Justin Fields because we have enough information of Justin Fields. Like, go back and watch the tape. Just go back and it, it sounds so simple. It sounds so simple, but at some point it gets so complicated. When I started working in college football in general, when I started working in the sport, around the sport, the number of guys I talked to that covered the sport that would quietly say, hey, you know, part of the reason the draft process has failed is a lot of people that are talking about the draft just don't love college football enough to watch it obsessively. I laughed at the time. I thought, no, it can't be that simple. But now I feel like in some ways it is. I do a lot of uh, opportunities to, to talk to different radio stations across the country, and I talk to our great ESPN affiliate in Vegas, where I'm originally from. I get asked about Clee Furl all the time. Number four overall pick from Clemson. Why has he not been better? Well, Clee has been exactly who he was at Clemson. Like, Go back and watch the way he played in college and tell me what he's doing now as a pro that isn't essentially that. Like, He's a better version of who he was in college. It's not his fault that the team drafted him fourth overall and the fan base decided that that meant he was going to be a sack monster. That wasn't what he did at college. At some point, the simplest thing any of us can do if we really want to try and make smart decisions is go back on YouTube and watch as much of any of these prospects as we possibly can. It's simple. But it's a necessary thing. By the way, uh, the L.A. County Sheriff's uh, de- detectives have determined uh, the Tiger Woods cause of his SUV crash in Southern Cal- California. They did not release details Wednesday. That's breaking news. They they cited unspecified privacy concerns for the golf star. So they have determined the cause, but they are not telling anybody anything due to privacy concerns. I'll keep you updated as I know more. Straight ahead, the hero the NBA needs is not on the Nets or the Lakers, but he is in action tonight. I'll tell you who it is next, Spain and Fitz. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. So obsessed with superstardom in the NBA and these super teams that are being built in front of our very eyes. We're looking at Voltron. The problem is none of it's being built the right way, and there's a hero that the NBA needs. I may have figured out who it is, Spain and Fitz. Jason Fitz flying solo tonight on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. You guys can chime in. 888-SAY-ESPN, 888-729-3776. ESPN Radio presented by Progressive Insurance. Cars, homes, boats, motorcycles, RVs, and more at Progressive.com. Now, first and foremost, I I wanted to come in at this point and and troll everybody a little bit. I thought that I was going to come in and laugh at uh, the NBA fans that haven't been – crying the way I'm used to. Like, I feel like every time a player decides he wants to play somewhere else, somebody cries about super teams. And, I, you know, I, I it's one of the things that I don't understand about a certain group of NBA fans that seem to just hate whenever players want to band together. I, I don't understand it, and I was looking for that. I came in thinking I was going to troll everybody. But then I realized that the super team issue isn't necessarily the same this year because of the way these super teams are constructed. Hear me out. All right? At some point, any sport, Needs a hero and a villain. And not just a, a decent hero and a decent villain. They need a great hero and a great villain. Now, what makes for a great hero? 
I'm not necessarily the best expert on Avengers. I'll let Mike Golick Jr. handle that uh, that space. I, you know, but I know enough of, for example, let's say the Batman books or, or really any of the great TV shows you can think of, Sopranos. Like you think about this, these eras of shows. What do we have from our lead? We have some element of them that we seem to hate and some element of them that we seem to love. And through that process of love and hate together, we find ourselves rooting for someone that isn't always worth rooting for. That's, that, that's, that's what so many of these movies are made, through, made of. The complexity behind, for example, Batman, right? But you need, if you're going to have Batman, if you're going to have this hero rise, you got to have a villain. And not just an okay villain. You need a great villain. You need the Joker. You need Heath Ledger's version of the Joker, right? You need this epic, stands the test of time, good guy versus bad guy. Go all the way back. Like Michael Jordan. When it was like Mike, if I could be like Mike. I want to be, I want to be like Mike, right? That version of Mike, I don't know why I felt like I had to sing to you. That version of Mike had to take on the Pistons. He had to take on the bad boys. I mean, that was just built in for you there. The Showtime Lakers taking on the Celtics. Like, obviously, we've got this sort of good guy, bad guy, depending on where you come from. Like, if you're out in L.A. at that time, when I was a kid, if you were out in L.A., Showtime Lakers, glitz and glamour, and the the Celtics are over here, and they're doing it the wrong way. But if you're in Boston, you're like, no, we're the good guys, and these, you know, pansies over here playing for the Lakers. Like, it's so easy to see the good guy versus bad guy comparison. It's run the NBA for generations. So now what do we have? You have the Nets. Taking on the Lakers. That's what we all presume is going to be the championship, right? You have Kyrie and, and Harden and KD coming together in what could be the ultimate villain. But the problem is there's not even some level. Like, they're, they're not villainous enough to really be hated. They're not good guy enough to have that little bit of element that we also root for. They're just sort of there as a bad guy. On the other side, you've got LeBron and AD, right? you got LeBron in AD, and now, uh, obviously, we know Drummond going to be getting his first start tonight against the Bucks. So Drummond coming in for this Lakers team, trying to put together some version of a villain or a hero out of the Lakers. The problem is the LeBron debate is just so run into the ground that I think we're bored with it. Right? We're, we're, we're bored with LeBron the hero or LeBron the villain. At this point, this is like Saw 7, like Saw 1, great horror movie. Saw 2... By the time you get to Saw 7, you're just trying to survive it. That's where we are on the LeBron debate at this point. It's Saw 7. You watch it, but you don't care the same way. It doesn't get you all up in your feels the same way, right? So you're looking across the board at these. I don't know why so many strange movie analogies tonight, but you're looking across the board at all of this, and what you end up with is Suicide Squad. Hear me out. Suicide Squad, I thought was an okay movie. Most people hated it. Why? It was a bunch of underdeveloped bad guys in an action movie that didn't have any suspense. It didn't have that Joker. It didn't have Heath Ledger. It didn't have the star that sort of made everybody say, I've got to flock to this. And, and even if you did flock to this, it didn't have the star that kept you engaged because you couldn't tell whether you loved him or hated him. It's so key. And that's what we have now. We have the Suicide Squad. We got a bunch of bad guys that aren't really bad enough to get all frothed up about, and they're not good enough to get all passionate about. It's just sort of there. That's why the NBA needs Giannis. Needs the Bucks. Now, I'm not just saying this because we have the Bucks, you know, obviously taking on the Lakers tonight. And it'd be easy to say, what about the Clippers? You know, the Clippers signed, uh, they're signing Boogie to a 10-day contract, right? So you got, uh, you got that going on versus, you know, Kawhi and Paul George. Maybe they could come out and be the heroes. They're, they're just, they're too quiet. They can't run a movie franchise as heroes, right? So you look across the board and what you need is Giannis, a young guy, two-time MVP, works his tail off. 
He's got to be the next Michael. He's got to get through his Pistons. He's got to go through this process, homegrown, homegrown in Milwaukee, right, in this, like, sort of Midwestern spot where you can look at it and say, wow, he took the Supermax to stay there, and look what he's delivering. The NBA needs that because you can't have – even go back to the Warriors a few years ago. Man, Steph, the shimmy, God, everybody was all in. Pre-KD Warriors, oh, everybody was all in on just loving them. Oh, they're so much fun. Just got to watch those guys, right? Everybody was all in on that. We need that for Milwaukee. Because otherwise, Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz flying solo tonight on ESPN Radio. What do you have? What do you have right now? I mean, we're stuck in this situation where if we get Nets versus Lakers, that's the series everybody wants. That's the series everybody's going to get, we think. If we don't get that, if there's some epic upset in the playoffs, are people going to tune out? Jake, producer extraordinaire, you're behind the glass tonight. Jake, you're a big, uh, you're a big basketball guy in general. I know you're big, you're a big dabbler in the gambling too, Jake. Uh, so as much as we know where Vegas sits on this, like as a, as a fan, are you in or out? If we if we suddenly get somebody other than Nets Lakers, are you disappointed? Absolutely not, Jason. I'm totally in on it. I'm a I'm a born and raised Knicks fan, which has led to a pretty lengthy, disappointing uh, NBA fanship. But I'm a fan of the game. And I don't really like the super teams, but I always like to compare Giannis to a guy like Michael Jordan, a guy who stayed with his team. Michael Jordan came out of college as a junior. He was about 21, 22 years old when he came into the NBA. In his first couple of years, he lost in the in the playoffs to the Celtics and two years in a row to the Detroit Pistons. But he didn't leave and look for something else. He organically grew a team, worked his butt off, and then he made the super team. He became the unbeatable force that the NBA needed. I'm with you, man. I kind of look at Giannis kind of like that. See, and, and I love the the point with, you know, Michael didn't make a super team. But let's also be real. Like, he was lucky to have a super team around him, whether he made it or whether it was drafted. I mean, uh, we can't undersell the pieces that were around him in this process. And Giannis doesn't have those. Giannis has some pieces around him, but he doesn't have those pieces around him. I feel like we're set up for this weirdness where the NBA is either going to be all about super teams in the final, which is going to create a strange animosity from a fan base, from fan bases across the board, trying to figure out how to feel about super team v. super team, right? Uh, Or it's going to turn around and it's going to be, you know, Giannis uh, or someone rising from somewhere else. I think that's why we see people rooting for Denver at this point. Like part of the reason there is this other culture in the NBA of I want something different is just because you look around and you say, man, Nets Lakers doesn't do it for me. It's all the star power in the world. If it was the video game version of it, it's all the star power in the world. But I mean, realistically, with all the star power in the world, is that going to be enough to create the type of interest the NBA wants out of this final? I don't know. And I think it's part of the reason that the interest so far this year in the season hasn't been exactly where we expected it to be. Straight ahead, we've got an all-time great team playing an 11 seed in the Final Four. Needless to say, March Madness has lived up to the hype. We'll talk to one of my favorite experts next on Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Jason Fitz flying solo. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. And you guys and all of our guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. Triple eight, say ESPN. 888-729-3776. The final four is set. I know we got Major League Baseball coming up, too. Don't don't uh, don't worry, baseball fans. In about 10 minutes, we're going to have a buddy uh, join us, going to get everything that you need to know about the baseball season upcoming. But 
I want to start with the Final Four because we've been talking so much about the NBA and uh, everything across NCAA sports in general. We haven't even had time to get into, obviously, what we know is a Final Four that looks like it could be one for the ages, right? At least if we are buying into the Gonzaga hype. Gonzaga taking on UCLA, Baylor taking on Houston. And this is so funny to me because we end up with, at the end of the day, a real shot at, through all the chaos of the tournament, getting the championship game we expected to get throughout the majority of the season. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from what's been an incredible and unpredictable tournament. As I've said a million times over the last few days, UCLA barely got in. They were one of the play-in games, had to beat Michigan State, and they did that by the skin of their teeth. And now they find themselves in the Final Four, which is absolutely incredible. Houston, a team that we've had a tough time figuring out exactly what to think about. I mean, I think a lot of us came in slightly blind to Houston because, let's be real, were we paying enough attention to an AAC team? Shame on us. We obviously weren't. But we end up with two other teams in the Final Four that are about as predictable as could be. Gonzaga, Baylor. Now, Gonzaga, we've talked about ad nauseum. They're undefeated. They, uh, they score points however they want to score points. They are absolutely incredible in the paint. They get close to the basket. Nothing you can do about it. And then all they do is score, right? The, the flip side of it is Baylor. We've covered Baylor a lot this year on College Game Day and Countdown to Game Day, the digital show I hosted uh, leading up to Game Day. And this is a fun team to watch. This is a team that has a lot of experience just like Gonzaga playing together. This is a team that really felt like last year they had a shot at a national championship, and now they get to bring all of that together. And Yeah, they got a couple of losses, but those couple of losses came as they were reeling after a COVID shutdown. Were it not for the virus, I think you could make a pretty stable argument that Baylor might be putting themselves in that same undefeated team uh, range. I mean, you've got two teams that are not good. You've got two teams that are incredible now. I don't want to take anything away from UCLA and Houston. It sounds like I'm doing that. But I do want to also credit the job that Gonzaga and Baylor have done throughout the course of this season, just being able to make it through, to be undefeated. I mean, to be undefeated at this point in any season is already incredible. To be undefeated at this point in a season when you're talking about this type of year for Gonzaga— With all of the chaos that came, with all of the limitations in practice, with all of the things that could have slowed down their run, to come in this strong, man, that's just, that says something about this particular Gonzaga team. Our buddy Jordan Cornett, ESPN host extraordinaire and ACC network analyst, was on Keyshawn J. Will and Zubin this morning talking about the fact that he thinks the sport needs Baylor versus Gonzaga. I think the sport needs it because it'll be a high-level game. I'm with you, I think, as everybody looks at the Final Four now. Uh, we were supposed to see these two teams in, in Gonzaga and Baylor in, in December. And because of COVID, much like a lot of things, the rug was pulled from underneath us. And we never got to see what that matchup was going to look like. So now that potential payoff is very exciting, fascinating, and will be rewarding. But also these two Final Four games, I, I don't want to look past them. I, I know you guys are willing to do that. And maybe it's just because so much I've invested in college basketball this season. But you guys watched. I mean, UCLA, we've counted them out for five games. They've managed to make them ugly, and they've managed to win them. Despite the opposition shooting better than them, they've made them rock fights. They played in the mud, and they've won. So we have the element of Cinderella still here in the Final Four, which is intriguing. Can they do the unthinkable? They are the biggest underdog in the history of the Final Four. UCLA. 11 national championship UCLA versus Gonzaga, a mid-major. That That's where we're at. And then on the other side, Houston and Baylor, I think that game is going to feel like a national championship game. I mean, absolutely. But at some point, and as much as I appreciate Jordan Cornette's 
love for these teams. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from you. You've got the number one and number two teams in the AP poll every single week uh, that are that are at this point playing so well. Seth Greenberg, ESPN College Basketball Analyst, joining us now on the Goodyear Hotline. Coach, thanks so much for the time. So in your mind, how does UCLA turn around and beat this Gonzaga team? Well, there's, there's a game plan for it. It's called the already upset. I want the tempo and rhythm of the game, which is so important, obviously, whether you want to speed it up or slow it down. They're going to slow it down. There's no doubt about it. Take care of the basketball. Don't turn it over. Live ball turnovers are like touchdowns. Shot selection will be important. Can't take bad shots because you take a bad shot against Gonzaga, they're running it down. I mean, think about this now. Gonzaga plays at the third fastest pace in college basketball. They get a shot up every 14 seconds. UCLA plays at the 319th fastest pace in college basketball. So that's going to be a battle. That's a game within a game. UCLA only turns it over 15% of the possessions. That's really good. So they can do those two things and get take good shots. That's part of it. Obviously, then defensively, they got to keep Suggs out of the lane. I thought Tiger Campbell was absolutely phenomenal the other day against Michael Smith. They, they, what they did against Michigan, you could talk about what they shot and all this. They took the head of the snake off. They took Michael Smith out of the game. They took Franz Wagner out of the game. Those guys were two for 17 from the field. That was the UCLA defense. The one really bad matchup they have, which most people have a bad matchup, is against Drew Timmy. they got to figure out how they're going to do guard him because, you know, against Hunter Dickinson, they didn't help. They scraped a little bit, but they didn't double and, you know, made him score over. And I thought Cody Riley did a great job of walling up and making him score over the top. So uh, there's a look. Here's the deal. Fitz, and that, you know, again, I'm not going to get into what other people say, but, like, the last team, time I checked, Saturday, they're going to play a game. They're actually going to play the game. It's not going to be a forfeit. They're going to play a game. So, like, one team's going to try to win, and you know what? The other guy's got guys on scholarship. They're going to try to win also. So, like, oh, my God, it's going to be this. They beat a number one. They beat the number two. It's not like they're going to show up. I can guarantee you Mick Cronin's team is going to show up. So we're going to have a game. We'll see what happens. But they're going to try to win just like the other guys. We're talking to ESPN college basketball analyst Seth Greenberg. And, Coach, that's why I love talking to you. Give, give me the, the other side on this. On the Baylor-Houston matchup, what did most of us miss about Houston? Well, you probably didn't watch them. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, like, I mean, you know, I'm not sure the rest of America was staying up watching those American games uh, against Tulane and East Carolina. Uh, by the way, East Carolina beat them. Uh, what you're missing is they're a typical, a typical Kelvin Sampson team. They're going to defend. They're going to rebound the ball. They're going to be tough as nails. This team has a, a, enough shot makers. Quentin Grimes has had a great year, shooting at about 40% average, 20 uh, points a game in the last 11 games, I think it is now. Uh, the Justin uh, uh, Grisham guy is is just a relentless, relentless rebounder. Sasser made big shots. He struggled early in the tournament. Sasser made big shots the other day. Uh, you know, when they needed him, early, especially in the first half. I mean, they, you know, he was 5 for 22 coming into that game. Uh, they are basically Baylor 1.0. Baylor's 2.0. They're Baylor 1.0. They defend. Baylor defends. They rebound. Baylor rebounds. Uh, they're extremely athletic. Baylor's athletic. The difference is Baylor's guards are better. They have more guys that you can count on. 83% of Baylor's points come from their guards. And I, I said that correctly. You, you know, if you were questioning, eighty-three percent of their points come from their guards. They got five guys on any given night that can absolutely flat light it up. Uh, like they played four games in the tournament, 
They've had three different leading scorers, and none of those guys are named Mitchell or Butler, and those are their two All-Americans. That's how good their backcourt is. Coach, one of the joys for me in my career so far has been getting to watch you work every Saturday and hanging out with you. Seth Greenberg, oh, ESPN stop. College Basketball Analyst. I, uh, you're the best, my friend. I, hey, I haven't had much of a career. That's all I'm saying, Coach. It just hasn't been much. No, we appreciate you joining me, my friend. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Yeah, appreciate you, buddy. All right, so Seth Greenberg breaking it down for you. He's right. I mean, they're going to play these games. It's hard for me not to see that we're going to get Gonzaga-Baylor, but this is a win-win for college basketball fans. We get Gonzaga-Baylor, we're going to get an amazing game. We get any of the other solutions through this, any of the other combos, we're going to get a hell of a story. And I'll take either one of those at this point. Uh, So obviously we'll continue to give love to that and also get you set up for the women's Final Four. We'll do that throughout the course of the rest of the night and the rest of the week. But coming up, oh my God, I cannot believe I'm actually saying this. Opening day? Yeah, that's right. Opening day is ahead. It's coming tomorrow. We're going to preview it with an expert that knows the game better than most. We'll do it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. And as always, hanging out with you on the ESPN app. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, presented by Progressive Insurance. Jason Fitz flying solo for you tonight. Major League Baseball opening day tomorrow. That's right, tomorrow. You want to tune into baseball's opening day? The Nats host the Mets. Coverage begins tomorrow night, 6 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app, 7 p.m. on ESPN. So there'll be no Spain and Fitz tomorrow night. You get to listen to some baseball. Now, uh, there are certain guys that are just, uh, I, I absolutely call when I need help, especially in, in the baseball world. And uh, this guy, we're going to head right over to the Goodyear hotline. We're joined by Fox Sports Florida uh, Major League Baseball analyst J.P. Aaron Sibia. Random fun fact for the world to know. When I was just a podcast trying to make it, and I was at the very beginning stages of my career and trying to be discovered, I wanted JP to come on my podcast as a guest and talk baseball. He did that. It helped open a lot of doors for other athletes that saw that he had done it, and uh, I've always been thankful to him for that. He's one of the best guys I know and also knows more about baseball than anybody. So, JP, thanks for the time, man. I appreciate you coming on and, and joining me. I'm trying to get set for this season, and the Dodgers are a huge favorite. Is there any reason that I should really be considering anyone other than the Dodgers to win it all? I mean, honestly, first off, just to, just to update, you know, Valley Sports uh, is now the, uh, the TV provider. They bought out all the regional Fox Sports, so now it's a we are just official uh, Valley Sports. But oh, look at that! Uh, Sorry about that, buddy. yeah. Yeah, just 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 uh, I mean, it just happened, so that's a pretty big deal. But at the end of the day, you know, when you sit there and you think like Golden State Warriors when they were kind of making those runs, and you look at the Dodgers, I think it's very comparable. Um, how do you go from being a World Series team and then get better and like by leaps and bounds? Because you had Trevor Bauer, and they lost Jock Peterson and a couple other guys, but nothing to where it was like big, big names. And then you add an arm to what you already had. And, I mean, how, how do you not say that they're the favorites? I, I just think that it's, it's – baseball's a crazy game, and obviously injuries can happen. And that's the one thing I think everybody's worried about is which starting staff is going to be able to keep it and maintain it because guys aren't going to be throwing the 200-plus innings that they're used to on normal seasons because everybody's worried about – they, them only getting a little bit of work last year, and if they increase that workload back to a normal season, they think that everybody's going to get hurt. Uh, JP, that's 
most interesting things right there to me. Like, I, I, I mean, I had the opportunity to watch you get ready for a season at one point, and I think about the COVID world, and you've had a truncated season, and now you've had a weird off season. Like, how does that impact the baseball we're going to see, especially in the beginning of the year, in your mind? Well, it's funny because it's it's everybody's in no man's land, and that's what you hear around the league is is when they ask questions to these GMs and, and front offices, they say, "Hey, how are you going to handle this?" They're like. Tell us, what do you think? And it's because that's kind of the consensus because although they can say that, hey, if you go from 70 innings to 180 innings, you're putting yourself at a high risk of injury because of enough data over time. But no one has really had to deal with this. So it's just a year that now all of a sudden we see the six-man rotation. Is there Who's going to be the first team that's going to go and implement six-man rotation, which takes away from, you know, guys – pitching a certain amount of innings or you know that that's that's the the stuff are they going to let guys go only five innings and then really rely or heavy on the bullpens especially early are they going to shut down guys in the middle of the season for a couple weeks I mean no one knows and that's that's the crazy thing about this year is that you can train as hard as you want but everybody's worried about what the arms and how they're going to respond because of the the little bit of innings that they had last year, and then all of a sudden you got 162 on the docket. That's 33 starts when guys didn't really have many starts last year. So it's kind of the unknown, which uh, I'm kind of excited to see who's going to kind of play their cards the best. If you're talking about going to six in, uh, six different pitchers, other than the personal stats and you know sort of the pride that's on the line, what's the downfall for that for anybody involved? Well, think about it. Everybody, we're all creatures of habit, right? We all have our routine, and there's a specific routine for guys on a five day rotation. And if you're a guy, you know Trevor Bauer, who actually wants to throw every other day, it's, you know he wants he wants to go every four days instead of every five. But most of these pitchers. They've gone every five days since they were in the minor leagues, and they've had a routine. You know, you throw the next day, you long toss. You know, the third day, you throw a bullpen. The fourth day, you rest. And the fifth day, you know, it's it's back on the mound. And so guys are out of whack, and you see this. It's What makes it tough is if a guy has an off day in between one of his starts, and all of a sudden the sixth day, he might not have that same command that he, that he had because it, his routine was off. So – that's really the only downfall. I mean, obviously, it takes away one of your bullpen arms, but it allows you to stretch out, you know, your starting pitching. But no one knows because it hasn't been done, and that's and that's the one thing. And if, also, if you think about it, that takes away your ace and your number two from getting more starts, right? You want to be on the bump as much as possible, and if they're not, then at the end of the day, does that make your chances of winning less, most likely? Because think about it, if you're a fifth starter, you, you know, we used to say, hey, let's get to the – the fourth and fifth starter because usually the top three are, are tough ones. And now if you have six, like how many teams have six really good starters? We're talking to JP Aaron, Sabia Bally sports, Florida MLB analyst on Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. Uh, so let's go over to the other side. A lot of conversation about New York. Uh, seems like Vegas loves the Yankees. Vegas loves the Mets. So the battle of these New York teams, how do you see it playing out? Well, I, here's my thing with the Mets. One, there's not a culture of winning, right? And you and you know this. I mean, in sports, you can have a high payroll, you can go after all these these guys, but there has to be a culture change. And yes, I know there's a new ownership, and yes, they've gone after it and they've added some some new guys. But at the end of the day, 
how many times can the Mets be a team that, hey, if everybody stays healthy, this can be a really good team and then just be a crap team. So I'm not in on the Mets. You know, I, I think that they do have a good team, but I'm not in on them because I think that their culture isn't what it needs to be yet. Maybe if we're talking a couple seasons, maybe. But right now, I don't believe in them. But then you go across to the Yankees. That team, I, I think they're going to win the AL East. And if that team performs and definitely keeps their guys healthy, and even though that they, they didn't last year, they lost a lot of guys, they still were a very good team. You know, Giancarlo Stanton, and you have Judge, they got D.J. LeMahieu back, who just, I mean, the guy wins batting titles like it's his job. Clint Frazier, who looks like the dude, Luke Voigt, who led the league in home runs. Like, they got these dudes that can really, really swing the bat, and their bullpen is lights out. So if their starting pitching gives them any, you know, success, which they're going to be good, then that team, I think it's no doubt when you have the conversation, the New York Yankees blow the New York Mets out of the water. Oh, see, this is this is the insight I need, JP, because as you well know, I don't have a favorite Major League Baseball team. And so we're going to do that on the show over the course of the season. Like, I'm going to pick a favorite. I don't want to be too bandwagon, but I also, like, I'm tired of rooting for teams that lose. So, like, who should I have my eye on as an off-the-radar team that's still going to have a really good year this year? You know what? The St. Louis Cardinals are a team that always kind of, you know, sticks out to me. They're a team that always seems like they're in it. I think they're going to win the Central Yadi Molina's back. When he's back there, you never know what can happen. They added Nolan Arenado, who is an absolute rock star, who's going to help Goldsmith lengthen up that lineup. Uh, they have Jack Flaherty, who's one of the better pitchers. They have a great pitching staff. Adam Wainwright's back. So they could be like a little dark horse. Again, they, they always seem to find a way to win, and that's in the National League. And then the, the, only, the other team that scares me, who you never know, and I feel like they get – guys one through the minor leagues who are really really good and then they just pick up these one-year deals and they turn these dudes into like back to where they were in their prime which is the tampa bay rays and series and they lost some guys you know they traded some of their horses but it seems like for whatever reason analytically all the different things that they have put together it's like they go and get a guy in the offseason who was like okay maybe a four and a half era and all of a sudden this guy's spinning high two, you know, low three RA, and he's having a phenomenal year. They just have ways of, of getting guys and maximizing their ability. So you never want to count those out because really they have their entire lineup back. The only thing that they lost was starting pitching. And uh, they've added a couple starters of, of like I said, those kind of guys that the uh, Rich Hill, who's been a journeyman, done pretty good. And then all of a sudden, is he going to be a dude for them that, that turns around and is just as good as a Blake Snell? And so – they're, they're a team you can never count out. Look at that. That's the insight I need. JP, my friend, I appreciate you hanging out with me. Thanks for all the insight. Thanks for the expertise, brother. Stay safe, and uh, we'll catch up soon. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. That's the the Major League Baseball You know, heads up you need. Don't, don't forget, tomorrow night, no Spain and Fitz. You'll be able to listen to MLB right here on ESPN Radio. Uh, so we'll, we'll make sure that you get all your baseball action in that way, too. But coming up, there was a major development in the world versus the NCAA today. I want to tell you about it. We'll tell you what it means for the future of college athletics. We'll do it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. I think we all need to accept that we can't stop this stone from rolling downhill. Stone, apparently a very hard word for me to find. Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. Didn't even have Sarah to catch me there. We're brought to you by Wendy's, proud sponsor of the 2021 John R. Wooden Men's and Women's Player of the Year 
And they're calling it the Super Bowl of paying college athletes today as the Supreme Court heard a case that is facing uh, the NCAA right now, uh, NCAA versus Alston. It was a 90-minute oral argument presented to the Supreme Court about amateurism in college sports. Now, it's important to note that this is not name, image, likeness. That's a different thing. And that can get confusing because right now there's so much national momentum, whether it's in the legal system with the courts or whether it's in uh, the, the legal system with laws being created. Either way, amateurism is absolutely something that's being questioned across the board. Now, this is specifically about ways that uh, the athletes can receive unlimited benefits as long as they're related in some way to education. So, yes, it could open the door for uh, players to be paid by their schools. It opens the door for players to have opportunities within their schools to make money, essentially. Uh, this is different than name, image, likeness. And to give you some clarity on that, I'll go back to Ryan Smith, who joined us earlier. If you missed the entire interview, you'll want to hear it on the uh, on the podcast, but this is a little of what Ryan Smith said about specifically how separate this is from name image likeness. So what's really key here is to separate this out from all the name image and likeness thing that we see going on across the country. It's a different issue. This is about whether the NCAA can cap education related expenses and benefits for college athletes, things like paid internships, payments for academic achievements, scholarships, stuff like that. If capping that violates antitrust laws. So they went back and forth on that for over an hour and a half today, which tells you how interested these justices are in this issue. Violates antitrust law. Hear that. Violates antitrust law. This isn't about competitive balance. It's not about what you think is right or wrong. It's not about whether or not there's a concept that a a player could go out and get an internship with the used car dealership down the street. I'm going straight out of Friday Night Lights with this one. And suddenly they're getting paid a ton of money to play. Like, this is not about any of that. It's about antitrust law. That's an important difference for everybody to hear because what we end up in this constant conversation is yelling back and forth. Should college athletes be paid has become almost as divisive and impossible to solve as the conversation about who's better, MJ or LeBron, even though we all know the answer. And I won't tell you what that is because it'll just stir you up. You've got to think about this at some point and understand that this is about antitrust law. Law means we're not going to have a say in it. So now it becomes how do colleges deal with whatever they see moving forward? That's why the NCAA is specifically most worried about the slippery slope this creates. Ryan also broke that down when he was on with us earlier. There, But if you're coming from the NCAA on this, you're saying, well, this is going to blow the doors wide open. Now you could pay somebody a ton of money for a paid internship or you could end up ending up paying every Division One athlete uh, and they talked about this a lot in the case. Every Division One athlete, something like 5900 bucks just for playing. They're worried about things like that, taking it on this. If we start in one place, it could be a lot more, and that's the way we see it, and that's the way we see the lower court's ruling. And that's the problem, guys. The problem is that we're worried about it instead of trying to figure out solutions. I mean, realistically, what's happened for years? The NCAA has come in, and they've said, this is the way it's going to be. Why? Because we say so. And everybody's had to take it. For years, athletes have had to take whatever the NCAA throws at them. For years, the NCAA could arbitrarily make policy or decisions, and there's so little recourse for the individuals that are under that umbrella that there's nothing they can do. And for years, everybody's had to say, please, sir, may I have another? Now, the tides have changed. Now, all of a sudden, what do we see? Oh, now we've got the courts and the legal system turning around and looking at the NCAA and saying, hey, guess what? Just like you spent years saying, because I said so to players, we are now going to say, because I said so to you. 
So at some point, the NCAA has a responsibility for the future of their ability to do business to figure out solutions. That's what blows my mind here. Everybody's so busy arguing about what it's been that nobody's making plans for what it will be. And that's what the NCAA absolutely has to be doing right now. We can have the argument all day long, and you guys will blow me up on Twitter, at Jason Fitz, feel free to follow me. You guys will blow me up, and we'll have this long back and forth about what's right for the future of college sports. But that's not going to be our decision to make. That's going to be a decision that, frankly, the Supreme Court's going to make. As I said earlier, right now, only 13 states don't have some sort of name, image, likeness bill that's either been proposed or passed. So guess what? It's coming. It's coming. And now the NCAA is chasing its own tail saying, hey, we need the federal government to step in and give us some help. We need the federal government to tell us what the policy should be because we don't want 50 different states with 50 different set of rules. Well, guess what? If the NCAA had been proactive in the first place, maybe they could have instituted a policy that satisfied everybody instead of being reactionary. They didn't do it. So now what? They need help. Well, now they need help and they're not going to get it. Now they're turning around to the courts. And remember, it's the NCAA that has appealed the lower court's ruling when it comes to amateurism. What the Supreme Court heard today was heard because the NCAA is appealing prior court's decisions that the amateurs were correct, that that does violate antitrust law. That's what you got to remember. See, the people on that court, they may be sports fans. They might be uh, college sports fans. But what they're mostly fans of is the law and the way they interpret it. They don't have a rooting interest. They don't really care if it's competitive for Georgia. They don't really care how it impacts UCLA. They don't really care about any of that. They care about the law and what the law says. So now we can either all be over here in our feelings about what we think it should be, how we think it should be handled, what we think is next in our minds, or we can look at the very clear evidence that's in front of us right now. If you don't like what the Supreme Court has to say and you think that this is going to be the end of all of it, well, then you're going to have to turn around and say, what about name image likeness from all of these states that are passing bills? The first name image likeness bill will go into effect in this summer. This summer, Georgia already today has now put a bill in front of their governor that passed through the House 171 to nothing. Went through the uh, Senate 50 to 2, I believe, was the vote. Now it goes, and they're willing to put it into effect this year. Because everybody's looking around and saying, if this is inevitable, then we need to pass these rules on name, image, likeness so that we can be competitive with everybody else. It's not about what you want. People in hell want ice water. I say it all the time. It's not about what you think about competitive balance. Right now, the only concern should be this. If you are a college athletics supporter if you love college sports then you should be looking around saying what's best with the circumstance we have what is the best way to ensure that everybody can still get out there and compete if you're a unlv fan like i was growing up then all you should be worried about right now is whatever the new landscape is how do we compete in it that's the real question and the opportunity here while we're busy talking about everything we think understand as i mentioned earlier According to recent analysis of social media following, eight of the 10 highest earning athletes right now in, in sports, in college sports, eight of the 10 highest earning that were left in the NCAA tournament would have been women. 
women that don't have the opportunity to go out and monetize the next level. So when you're going to have your argument about millionaires and billionaires, understand that many of the people that would benefit from this are neither and may never be either. But what we know is they are athletes today under the umbrella of the NCAA, and that for the first time in my lifetime, that umbrella has been challenged by the legal system. And no matter what your fandom says, it'll be the courts and it'll be the legislation that has the final word. Stop complaining about it and figure out how to thrive in it. If your favorite school isn't doing that right now, they will be left behind and they will not be competitive when they need to be. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. We always appreciate it. Remember, Major League Baseball tomorrow, but Freddie and Fitzsimmons is next. Listen up. They got Bruno Mars and Michael Phelps joining them together at once. You don't want to miss it. This is Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio.